The content discussed in the Left Behind series and therefore this podcast includes emotional trauma, human suffering, extreme violence, gore, as well as hurtful caricatures and stereotypes of marginalized groups, and is in no way reflective of the host's personal views or beliefs. But we beeped out the cuss words in case you want to listen in front of your mom. Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B.J. by Tim LaHaye and Jerry The future has come to pass. Hello and welcome to all of you out there in this global podcasting community of ours. This is I Survived the Rapture, that podcast that slogs our way through the Left Behind novel series so you don't have to. I'm your lapsed evangelical Shane Mazzell. And I'm your ecumenical fanboy Gavin Russell. Okie dokie. Part two of The Mark, The Beast Rules the World. We are going to be starting at chapter eight. Gav, how'd you feel about this section? This one, okay, so... It's managed to keep a little bit of the traction up from part one. I'm really still digging the dystopia vibes that are coming on, even though it's kind of, uh, you know, real world cringe, like the, the, the loyalty <laughs> enforcement devices. I'm eating it up in the narrative there that we get some cool stuff like talking about that. There's some nice little like, you know, biblical nods. That I'm like, OK, I, I want to see where this goes. Good stuff kind of all around. I was at least entertained. All right. So we've had a little break since the last episode. Can you remind the audience what a loyalty enforcement device is? Uh, that's a guillotine. <laughs> Uh, and yeah, then, then like Mark application uh, centers, they just put a biochip in you. Right, right. So you get chipped like a dog um, <laughs> so that they can always track you and uh, make sure that you have the Mark of the Beast and your loyalty to the global community, which we're going to talk a little bit about that. I know I went on a huge tirade last episode about the, uh, the vaccine and the biochip thing. Um, so I'm going to keep that down to a dull roar this time around. <laughs> um, but we're going to be beginning with chapter eight, like I said a little earlier, and it starts with Mac, Abdullah, and David. So we're in New Babylon. Mac, Abdullah, and David are in the hospital discussing how they're going to get out of here. Because as we remember from last episode, there's now a ticking clock on all of our GC insiders, which now includes Hannah, mm -hmm. Hannah Pale Moon. So they're sitting there discussing like, hey man, what are we going to do? Yeah. And so they're all kind of trying to put their heads together and come up with a plan. And that's when we get hit with some bad news. Annie's not missing. Annie's dead. Sad, but can we say unexpected? Not really. Yeah, because I even, I even kind of like subconsciously called it before, like in the end of Indwelling. So yeah. it, we we the the relationship was too healthy for them to continue. I was going to say the exact same thing. They took the one most healthy relationship in the book and they went ahead in 86. <laughs> yeah, and it's it's weird that like they're on a ticking time bomb cuz it never does it ever explicitly states what would happen if a person with the mark of the lamb just takes the mark of the beast to go incognito? I think they they, they try don't to, explain it yet. They don't explain it yet. They okay. say 
a little bit later that you literally can't, mm-hmm. but that gets a little bit more complicated. So I don't want to spoil anything because okay. we won't get fully there until the final section of this book, okay. so the next episode, but there is some discussion of it when we get to Zion a little bit later. Okay, gotcha. Um, so yeah, Hannah comes in, she says, I'm sorry, because it turns out Annie was in fact killed. She was killed by lightning when Fortunato called down the fire and the lightning during the actual resurrection scene at the end of the indwelling. So we've lost Annie. And David, oh, he does not take this well. He's like, oh, she was my first love. I've dated before, but Annie was different. She was the love of my life. And like this guy like starts breaking down like this it it, like honestly like coming back to this book after a few weeks and this being like one of the first scenes that i um i heard really got to me because i'm like oh man like we're I'm, i'm back in the action with like an actually really good scene yeah and it's good and i'm trying to resist the urge to nitpick here because immediately it is followed by the group gathering around saying a prayer essentially thanking god that Annie is now with him. Yeah. Which is not an uncommon thing. If you've ever been to a Christian funeral, especially an evangelical or charismatic funeral, that is a refrain that gets said over and over and over. It's a Christian version of they're in a better place. Mm -hmm. Now, part of me wants to say this is a very emotionally impactful scene. It means a lot. The other part of me just kind of goes, yeah, well, you're only going to be separated for three and a half years. So yeah, if that, if David could die sooner and you know, exactly, you know, you know, your days are numbered. You are not guaranteed tomorrow, that kind of thing. But I feel like that would be picking a few too many nits if I get into that. So now that I've said it, I'm going to, withdraw it and say yeah, it's still pretty impactful you feel for david in that moment because nobody wants to go through that you know what i mean mm-hmm. we end out this section with david saying look i gotta see her yeah and even though hannah has protested and said you really don't want to he says i have to and that's that's understandable yeah and you know? oh man the the david plot line in regards to annie it continues developing in like I, in a very interesting way like even though she's dead that plot line of i gotta see annie develops very well so i'll I'll at least commend jerry for that yeah and we'll we'll get to that later so we cut to the safe house the strong building zeke fresh off the heels of blowing up the gas station with buck is now moving in um so they're kind of giving him the grand tour they're showing him around and i just wrote fleshy young man (laughs) (laughs) the amount of times the word fleshy is used i'm gonna mention this later when they say it about somebody else Please stop using that word, Jerry. Yeah. Stop saying fleshy. That's the left behind moist. <laughs> Ugh, it's so bad. But look, man, Zeke is a cinnamon bun. I like him a lot. Yeah. He's an innocent kid. You know, he means well. He's a nice guy. Just nothing wrong with this character other than the fact that Jerry keeps calling attention to the fact that he is dumb and fat. Yeah. And you know what? Yeah. Cause like, even cause he asked to hold the baby. Chloe's like, are your hands clean? He's like, oh yeah, yeah. I got to make sure they are to like handle the IDs and stuff. You don't, don't want to get any smudges. And like my hands look a little bit black, but that's just because like, you know, they're stained. I won't get anything on your baby. Please let me hold this baby. Yeah, he's a good kid. And they sort of pass Kenny around and Zion has a moment with Kenny and then Hyam has a moment with Kenny. And it's, it's just sort of using Kenny as that emotional moment again yeah which happens pretty consistently he is, I he think is by their, this point. he is their beacon of hope he is almost kind of like the baby jesus almost <laughs> a little in a bit way. yeah um i didn't even think about that parallel you know he's this little promise of something better which i mean really the promise of something better exists beyond this world mm-hmm. you know so it's just more of a tether to like their own reality and to like the fact that they're 
is good in the world. Yeah. Kind of thing. Which I don't know if it entirely works, but you know, it's the best we got yeah. right now. I, and you know, I, like I've said in previous episodes, I always love uh, Kenny content. You know, g- give give me the little baby, giving me babble, and I'm like, I'll eat it up. Yeah. <laughs> so to circle back around to Hannah um, and David. So David goes down to the morgue with Hannah. You liked this section. I did not. I you felt didn't. like it was needlessly gory, like a lot of things in here. They take the covers off. They look at Annie's body. Her skin is cracked and burned, and there are these large lesions in it. And most importantly, her eyes are stuck open. Ah, uh, okay. And so David is looking at the body, and it's described in pretty gruesome detail. Um, it's not the worst that we've seen, um, but it's, it's pretty rough. To read you yeah know? you know like the the most egregious part is in spite of himself he leaned over um her until he could see past where a tuft of hair had been pushed up in the front behind that was a silver dollar sized hole that exposed her brain Ugh. Ugh. that's what i was talking about yeah and yeah. like this is the second time that we've seen through to someone's brain in this book at least this one makes sense where like the person's dead and not yeah. wearing just like a mask exactly um but, like, even though it's, like, needlessly gory, this is, like, I don't know, for, like, the emotional tug of, like, you know, this is a person that he loved. Now he has to see in, like, this, like, really guttural state. So I didn't mind it that much. It was a bit much, but I could I could see why, like, it hit us hard. And I'm, I'm going to say, and this is just my personal take on a lot of things, there is a fine line between realism and edge. Okay. I would prefer that this book tread on the other side of that line. Yeah. I don't think it goes over the line too many times, but there are multiple instances where I'm like, all right, we could go ahead and cut away from this now. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the gore serves the moments as often as it detracts from them. Yeah. It makes me want to kind of step back and go, "Uh uh-uh, no, I'm just going to skip this part. Yeah, and if I was like, if I was 12 reading this, I I, I don't know, because like as a 12-year-old, I wasn't completely like, desensitized to like gory stuff yet because i haven't seen it so like if i was like you know a sheltered christian kid reading this this would probably shock me really really bad so speaking from personal experience it really didn't shock me because i had no frame of reference ah okay you know i mean other than like playing doom okay i didn't i didn't have a frame of reference for that much gore you know, I wasn't allowed to watch horror movies and things like that. I didn't watch zombie movies. I guess, like, I, I like one of the directions I'm coming with is, is like, some of my early memories, like, watching cartoons with my grandfather's, like, oh, all these newer cartoons, they're too violent. And they, they show too much, like, too much gore, even, like, when the cartoons didn't get particularly too bad, even when just seeing, like, a character getting shot and, like, blood going out or, like, a guy getting hit by a car he would say that was that would be a bit too much. So definitely, if he knew about this uh, and, like, didn't have the context that it was Christian-focused, he'd probably be like, yeah, you pro- a 12-year-old probably doesn't need to be reading about, like, a person's brain falling out. Yeah, probably not. And I don't think that these were ever specifically focused at a younger demographic because we got to remember there is the kids series that is focused mm-hmm. on them. So there wasn't an expectation, at least on paper, that these would be picked up and read by people that were my age mm-hmm. when I read them the first time. But it happened all the same. Yeah. Because I thought that the kids books, because like, that's where I started. You know, I started with the kids books and then was like, eh, I kind of want to just read the adult stuff. And so I skipped over to that. Okay. Um, but I guess I'm the grandpa in this situation. <laughs> like, I don't know. Maybe this is a bit much. But, you know, I also do enjoy a lot of gory content for its own sake. I just think it clashes here. 
Yeah, like in something like Berserk or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It works, because that's the kind of story it's telling. But like Left Behind, I don't know, like it, it, it feels jarring whenever he goes egregious into right. it. Right, there's a difference between Left Behind and Chainsaw Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's that's very, very different. Um, so we finish out the chapter with Ray waking up in his hotel room to the phone ringing. So they're still in Montana, him and Hattie and Albie. And this is an intro because like when he when the phone's ringing, it's not cell phone. It's the hotel phone. So the second he's like, oh, my God, who would have this number? Who is calling? How do I even introduce myself? Do I say Ray or Marvin Barry? He forgot that he asked for a wake up call the night before. <laughs> Um, but it's Hattie because yep. she's bored and she wants to go get breakfast and she's trying to get him out of his room. She's like, come on, just get breakfast with me. Don't be a stick in the mud. Don't be a poopy pants. And finally he relents and he walks out the door. Nope. So she walks outside and nearly tackles him in kind of an ecstatic state. Ah, okay. Trying to see his mark. Yep, and that's because Hattie is now a full-blown believer. She's finally come to the other side. We finally did it. It is eight books in. She was the biggest hard case out of all of them, and I think that's the full roster of the Undecided now. They got Hyam, and now they got Hattie. I don't think that there's anybody else on the menu, at least at this point. Yep, we get so, the took us a while to get here, yep. but we finally we finally got Hattie Durham on the team. Yeah, we get the iconic. Uh, Let me see yours and I'll show you mine. <laughs> yeah. um, that, that they wake up Albie and everyone's like, oh, my God, it's Christmas. We all have marks now. It's so wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Which I mean, you know, considering the scenario, I mean, I don't think it gets quite the fanfare that we would have expected. It's a little bit more intimate yeah. than that. Um, but she's definitely very happy yeah. to show everybody. Yeah, she, um, she's very much pulling a... It was it was Ken that was, like, jumping around being, like, a, a cowboy, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it, it, hers is very much, like, a, a slightly less hyped-up Ken, where she's just, like, skipping around, showing everybody that she can, you know, that kind of thing. Right, and that is going to shift a little bit when, when they start getting closer to home. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll get there later because okay. we got to move on to chapter nine. We get another expository stroll around the safe house. And if you're thinking right now that they're spending way too much time updating us on, and then this person was in this room doing this, and then this person was in this room doing this, that's going to change a little bit later. But for now, Buck is walking around the safe house, kind of getting the lay of the land, um, more exposition of what everyone is up to. And we get a little reminder that Chang Wong Ming Toy's brother um, is being placed in a position inside the GC. Yes. Which is going to become relevant in a few chapters. Okay. But that is something that they see fit to remind us of right there. And there's also some foreshadowing about a secret mission in Israel. Now, what that secret mission is, we don't have full context on yet because it's been hinted at. It's been talked around, but they haven't exactly explicitly said what it's going to be yet. Mm -hmm. That's going to become clear in this section. And that is one of the things that I've said in a couple of episodes is setting up some major plot events for future books. Yeah. But that secret mission is going to require co-op members probably bringing in a bunch of airplanes. Why they are bringing in airplanes will become clear later on. Gotcha. Pulling at like the boomer vibes from Fallout New Vegas that they're they're getting all like the planes together for like their big mission. Yeah, they're kind of getting a fleet together now. 
Gotcha. So we get a little check in with Zion and he is on three separate computers. Now. Yeah, he's got his Bible on or Bibles on one computer, commentaries on the other, and then he's on the forum in the middle. So he's just like now now Zion's almost like hacker man, just like jumping between computers rapidly. And you know what? That kind of did it. Like, I, don't, I like that vignette, <laughs> that little uh, it's fun, that little mental image. But I think it's interesting that he's switching between computers. Mm -hmm. instead of like multiple monitors which yeah. at the time you got to think about it all these monitors are going to be crt yeah so they're big they're bulky and the display driver technology may not have been there yet to hook up multiple monitors on stuff but it's interesting that that's where they go is to multiple computers instead of multiple displays yeah which is really funny because like I mean, everybody got two screens now. Mm -hmm. So they've gotten the news about Hattie and they start talking about how she was a lost cause or she was the biggest lost cause, which I can't really argue with. Um, but Zion makes the valid point. We were all lost causes yeah. at some point. Yeah. Lost cause. Cameron, Cameron, you and I were lost causes. All of us were. Who was a less likely candidate than Haim? We pleaded and pleaded with him, but who would have believed he would eventually come into the kingdom? Certainly not I. Don't give up on Miss Durham. And we go on to talking about Zion's latest message. Now, we haven't heard an actual Zion message in a while. Yeah. Um, because pretty much all of Indwelling, he was doing, you know, his magical mystery tour. Shit. Um, and now he's getting more into back into his groove, doing the messages, reaching his flock. Um, and I can't actually believe that it has taken me this long to see who Zion is a stand in for. Yeah, it's surprising that I didn't notice it either. That he's the Apostle Paul? Yeah. Okay, so for those of you who may not be big Bible Sunday School folks, the Apostle Paul was a Jewish religious leader first. Before he was a big Christian figure, there is some citation in the Bible um, that Paul was either a member of the Sanhedrin or he was himself a Pharisee. I think he does refer to himself as a Pharisee, so a specific type of Jewish religious adherent slash scholar, which very much like Zion, and had a conversion Different sort of experience than Zion did. Um, Paul actually met Jesus on the road and was appeared to in a vision. He was struck blind and then he was later healed by a Christian. Didn't a donkey talk to him too? That's uh, Balaam. Oh, Balaam. Okay. Yep. Different figure. All right. Um, but similar sort of incident uh, that something miraculous happened while on the road. Um, but yeah, Balaam was an Old Testament figure. Okay, gotcha. With the talking donkey. Um, now, Paul was struck blind um, and he was healed later and fish scales fell from his eyes. So when you hear the phrase and the scales fell from his eyes, um, when talking about when someone has like an epiphany or a realization, um, that's what that means. Oh, uh, OK. That is what that is in reference to. The figure of Paul being someone who began as a Jewish scholar and then became not just a Christian figure, but a large Christian figure who witnessed to people all over the known world using the written word is a character archetype that Zion is now fulfilling. And like I said, I can't believe it took me this long to really kind of put that together, but that's who he is. Okay. Which is kind of interesting. Like yeah. you talk a lot about Jerry and Tim writing their own sort of biblical fan fiction. It's really what they're doing. Yeah. You know, they're sort of mishmashing and riffing on biblical archetypes a lot. Yeah. And I know in previous episodes, you've brought up like the roles that both Hyam and Zion will play. They start to crystallize in this section. Yes. And I, I'm excited to talk about Hyam's role in a little bit. Right. We learn that his messages online have now crossed the 1 billion reader mark. Which is about how much of the percentage of the like world population now? 
Uh, like how many people are left? Oh man, I got to do some math. <laughs> so is it like a quarter of the people that are left or a third or half? I think we, I think we hit Thanos numbers. So we hit half. Yeah. So uh, let's just go from current numbers or let's say 2001 world population uh, would be 6.194 billion okay. in 2001. Um, and then if we half that, then we're looking at about 3 billion. All right. So one third yeah. are reading uh, Zion's messages online, which is interesting. If a billion people are reading your stuff at once, they don't take his servers into account. Yeah. <laughs> that would crash your site. I mean, isn't it, isn't the, the servers now in the strong building? So server really strong, Shane. Server big strong. Yeah. Server strong, building strong. Uh, Hummer strong. <laughs> Hummer strong. <laughs> Yeah, summer. Yeah, I, they don't take that into account. I think that's about where Tim and Jerry's like knowledge about computers just sort of falls off. Their computer guy clocked out. Um, but he goes on to another very long Zion passage, and I don't know if you have anything specific you want to pull out of here, but a couple of things that stuck out to me um, are that thirty percent of the Bible contains prophetic passages. Citation needed. On that one, I don't have enough confidence to fully argue with Tim on that. Yeah, that was something I was like, ah, when I read it. There are a lot of books that are considered prophecy. Um, There are books <coughs> that are written in forms of Hebrew poetry that are considered prophecy. There are books that contain different types of prose that are considered prophecy. It is really kind of iffy on that. And there are different scholars that will debate the amount of prophecy that is contained in the Bible and what is just like we've learned about Revelation, coded imagery. Um, coded language that are written as words of encouragement or that are, are illusions, but are taken as prophecy. It, it is a real kind of dicey, unclear subject there. Mm -hmm. um, so when Tim tries to state with authority that it's 30 percent, uh, like I said, citation needed. But again, I'm not an expert on biblical prophecy. I'm not an expert on anything that's not Metal Gear Solid. Um, he also says we are past the point of gentility. Now, in this context, what he is saying is I'm no longer beating around the bush about the fact that Nikolai Carpathia is the Antichrist. He is indwelt by Satan and this entire regime is of hell and the devil. Mm -hmm. That's what he's saying. He's not like saying, OK, it's time to be mean to GC people. He's saying, like, I'm not going to sugarcoat this anymore. Gotcha. But I did find something in a later passage, um, just a few lines down where he talks about this world leader who preached peace while wielding a sword. And I just wrote, uh-oh, okay. Because I don't know if you have seen this trend online amongst a lot of far-right Christians, and especially amongst like QAnon people and Christian dominionists and who we might call Christo-fascists, mm -hmm. you know, like the Lauren Boebert types, you know what I mean? Like yeah. the Marjorie Taylor Greene type people. They lean very hard into the the passage i come not to bring peace but a sword yeah um and i thought that that was an interesting contradiction there that like they tried to paint nikolai as an individual who claims to bring peace but instead brings a sword when now a large part of the evangelical flock is actually holding that up as a good thing yeah and it's weird because like that verse was one of the things that started making me first question my faith when i was younger because i'm like well like why can't he just bring peace he's god he can just 
do that in a way? Like, why why does the sword aspect have to come in? Why does there have to be bloodshed for like you know the the glory of the kingdom to arrive? You know, for me, you would get almost a sardonic sort of cop out answer of why doesn't Thanos just double the universe's resources? Yeah. Um, and my answer would be because this is a story written by humans Mm -hmm. because this is not the word of God. But I feel like, you know, if I'm trying to argue that within the Christian sphere of uh, philosophy, that that doesn't hold up, right? I'm not going from the same premises that like a theologian would. So to answer that, I think Zion does a better job of it than I do by saying, woe to those that believe that God is only love. Oh, yikes. And I heard that a few times um growing up too because i'd be like if god is a god of love then like like why is all this bad stuff happening this doesn't seem like someone that loves us and they would be be like oh god's not only love yeah that sort of the god contains multitudes yeah type thing and we can get into that about how you know mirrors not maps yeah right the theology will reflect the people that are writing it and the people that are adding to it as the centuries sort of march on um but i think that god is love is a good marketing tactic it Mm -hmm. is good to get people in it is good to make people feel good um, and feel like they're doing the right thing and they're in the right place and they are accepted and they belong but when it is time to turn that gaze outward toward Mm -hmm. the other god ceases to become a god of only love and also becomes a being of wrath and a being of righteous anger or a being of pure holiness that that which is wicked cannot abide gotcha you know what i mean so So. it's kind of like to get into the door they'd be like god's love and then finally when they get you they're like here's the rest of the sephirot right exactly exactly (laughs) um so i think that that is again and i i hate to just drip right into the sort of like atheist or anti-theist viewpoint on it but i think that it is because this version of god is translated and written by humans that version of god is going to contain all of the different facets of humanity yeah you know what i mean it is it's yeah it's like almost like a brahma situation where this being has like you know a multitude of faces that like contain like all these different emotions and stuff that's like the that's the whole of all humanity, essentially, and all and emotions. there is precedent for that in Christian theology. Yeah. There are I can't remember what it was called because I was I was doing some research today on a meme about anti-masking mm-hmm. <laughs> of all things, and they were breaking down the word oxygen. It began with ox o x, and the ox being a symbol of redemption. And I had to look into that. They were saying ox is a symbol of redemption, which it is, um, and I think it's called the tetramorph. Um, and it's the being with the four faces, um, the that, lion and the is that eagle. the chair beam? At something, some kind of yeah, cherubim. You know, thing. I was, I was writing. I had to look up cherubim because I was making an angel in an original setting have those faces. So yes, it's the cherubim. Yes, um, and the ox being the symbol of redemption and sacrifice because that is what was sacrificed on the altar in the temple. All right, I'm gonna go off on this tangent. Um, this was an anti-mask argument saying that oxygen was ox, the symbol of redemption, the letter Y for the Y chromosome, God the Father, the male identity, and then Gen for Genesis, and they also said Gen G G E N for origin, which is not how origin is spelled. You're 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 f-ing me up. Here, I'm not. <laughs> this is that dude. Tell me that that is any different. From the amount of like reaching and digging that we have seen in this book right. so far. I mean, like, because like, like this, the weird multiples of 666 like and this, all of that. This reminds me of like when I'm on these left behind boards, like the kind of just like Christo babble, I'll call it, yeah. where you're trying to like wrap 
everything that's happening in biblical prophecy, and your your brain falls out uh, like uh, at certain stages of this. Correct. Where you're just being like, and this is why the mask is actually like referencing someone in I, something in Isaiah, this specific verse. And I've said it before, and I'll say it again. Our brains were not developed to be right. They were developed to see patterns, Mm -hmm. not necessarily the right patterns. And that gets us into trouble. So when we see these things, especially when you are someone like Tim, who is looking into prophecy, you are going to see patterns that may or may not be there. And that is a lot of what really the rest of the book is not saying that the previous half of this saga wasn't chock full of that but you're gonna see even more as we go forward so to take us all the way back to um preach peace while wielding a sword to another thing that cropped up i think it was on reddit recently this actually came up uh in the news not too far away from us it was on the i-75 corridor so there was a billboard on the I-75 corridor in a little town that had a picture of Donald Trump on it. Oh, no. And it said, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. Now, you mentioned the book of Isaiah earlier. Does that sentence mean anything to you? It's not initially connecting, but refresh my memory. So you may have heard those words uttered around Christmas time. And that is actually from Isaiah 9, verse 6. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. You know, um, earlier in the podcast when I kind of scoffed that even, like, you know, Democrat Christians would call like we're calling Trump the Antichrist, and I thought that was a bit too far. Mm-hmm. Uh, bro, I ain't I ain't scoffing at that anymore. If this if if there's any like revelation stuff that's actually true, Trump's that Antichrist, dude. Yeah, I mean they're still trying to bang that drum, and yeah. it is it is a little sickening now. Apparently the the billboard has since come down, um, and there were even pastors in the general area that were condemning it. Okay, that's good at least. You know, there's something, but that's not all there was to the billboard. Down in the bottom right-hand corner, and you guys can Google this. um, You know, you can Google that verse and Trump billboard, you'll find it. I have never seen this billboard in person, but I did read a news article about it. There is the words joint heirs, like, you know, heir apparent, and then the reference Romans 8.17. So I'm going to let you read that from the ESV. Can you pull up Romans 8, 17? Uh, Yep. (laughs) The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit um, that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So when you apply that to a president around whom a lot of kooks are saying uh, that he is suffering, he is being derided, the election was stolen from him, that we must suffer with him in order to share in his glory. It's real bad, man. It, oh, God. <laughs> it ain't good, they're, dude. They're, they're literally trying to hold this man up as their, like, almost God emperor yes. now. Yes, quite literally, God emperor. All like, hail Christ. Pontifex Trump. Yeah, totally, man. Like, it's it ain't good. And, you know, you think 
that that's like a gross exaggeration. Like you think that people in like blue counties and blue states will go like all these people in the red counties and red states are like this. That It's like a gross exaggeration that it's, you know, trying to just like deride and tear down people in red counties and portray them as ignorant fascists. Well, I'm here to tell you guys, like, that's a real thing. So <laughs> it's definitely there. And that line of thought exists within someone who had the cash to purchase a billboard, which like, I don't have enough money to buy a billboard. You got enough spare cash on you to buy a billboard? No, not So really. they've got resources at least. I don't know who purchased it. Um, It sure was there for at least a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, it ain't great. And I can't help but let this stuff color our reading of this material. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you posted that TikTok um, on the Facebook page and maybe in the Discord of uh, it was like anytime evangelicals hear that something's going down in the Middle East and the guy just holds up a copy of Left Behind and is like, it's time. <laughs> Oh god! And like, I feel like this is like I know we're milking this section a bit, but we I, really I, I want to bring up real quick because I shared the other day on the page something that really jarred me. Uh, Trump uh, pulled a Tim LaHaye in the '90s. He was one of the key speakers at a Mooney's conference. Was he really? Yes. And you know, again, the Moonies were this like evangelical cult. That rose in South Korea. We can say are. Yeah, they are. Right? Yeah, yeah they're, they're, they're still around. They, um, uh, but yeah, Sung Young Moon founded the, um, the cult. Uh, he claimed to be a reincarnation of Jesus and that the world would start coming into the end times in the year 2000. That was why Tim LaHaye and Jeremy Jenkins were big fans of him because they really like tied in with his whole thing. Beverly LaHaye helped out with rallies and stuff. And after Sun Young Moon died, the cult kind of got more organized and headed by his wife, who now kind of operates things a little bit more. But even even though their Jesus guy died, cult's still strong. Now, you mentioned that that happened in the 90s. Yeah. I think it bears mentioning, because uh, you mentioned the thing in the 90s, and I went ahead and pulled it up because I thought I saw something about this the other day. It has come back around. Ah. On uh, September 11th of this year, yeah, the that's... 20th anniversary of 9-11, uh, the Donald showed up at another Mooney's conference, uh, I think, quote, uh, praising them for their incredible story. Yeah, yeah praising yeah, so Reverend Moon and his wife. They're blending the, the, the nationalism aspect of 9-11 with that whole, like, Christo-fascism angle in a very terrifying way. It really bothered me that that's, like, the progression of this timeline that's happening. It's not good. Yeah. So if we're saying anything to our own tribulation force, um, keep your heads on a swivel, because this ain't good. <laughs> yeah, it's like, it's like Trump is collecting fringe groups like Pokemon cards. Yep, um, and I think that that is uh, an important distinction about a guy like him. And I, we're getting way more political in this one than I expected us to, but I guess this is as good a time as any. <laughs> yeah, this this is the mark of the beast. This, we're hitting on contemporary stuff with, right? Uh, with what's going on. Because my man ultimately just wants to be liked. Mm-hmm. Um, and when he can move on from group to group, like he had the popular vote and that was a good place to be in. And then his approval rating dropped. And then he will pretty much pander to any group that will tell him the stuff his daddy never told him, mm-hmm. um, that he's a very good boy and that, uh, he's doing a great job and that he's the smartest and he has the best brain. I think it is incredibly dangerous. One of these days he could amass the right combination or the wrong combination 
of fringe groups like you've talked about to truly bring something very bad. Now, is it my hope that that doesn't happen? Absolutely. Like, I hope this eventually peters out, but that was what we hoped in 2015 Mm -hmm. um, before the election and into 2016 when the election was on the horizon. So I hate it so much. Get me off this rock. So all of that, that little digression um, is basically to inform where Zion's rhetoric is at. And that is going to continue and propel us into desecration and into the remnant and forward into Armageddon. Mm -hmm. Speaking of desecration, there is foreshadowing uh, that the Antichrist is going to finally desecrate the Jewish temple. Yep. So as a reader at this point, were you kind of aware of where the Jewish people were at? Because you've had this sort of lingering background mention of a Jewish resistance to the GC that has been there the whole time. They're never on screen. We never talk to them. There is never a character that is a member of that resistance. Usually they're only mentioned where it's just like, oh, we got the Judahites and then the the Jewish resistance over here. Right. They never get any screen time. Yeah. They're only usually mentioned alongside the Christian resistance. Correct. But the Christians are the one that gets the main stage because, of course, they're the ones that are actually right, Mm -hmm. which just kind of makes me go, ugh, But that is foreshadowing for something that is going to happen. And uh, if you've guessed that it might take place in the book entitled Desecration, you're probably right. Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> um, now, they do get into a weird distinction at the end of the address, um, because, by the way, this is Buck reading the address and then is about to send it out to the world about the Book of Life versus the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, how familiar are you with those terms? Uh, You know, I know the Lamb's Book of Life, that's like uh, the Book of Life and the Lamb's Book of Life. They're both referring to like the Bible, right? Unless one is like, you know, deeper than the Bible. They are actually not referring to the Bible. Um, They're basically referring to God's honor roll. If your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, um, you are allowed into heaven. Oh, so so it's the the naughty or nice list. Correct. He's making a list, checking it twice. Gonna peek into the Lamb's Book of Life. So be good, for goodness sake. Whoa, somebody's coming. (laughs) Somebody's coming. A little Ghostbusters there for you. (laughs) So from the very scant amount of research that I um, actually had time to do this week, About the difference between the two, the general consensus that I can find is that they are the same. This is another one of those things where you're going to get certain theologians that are going to argue about are they different things. Um, There are, I think, eight different references to a book of life. Um, And one of them very specifically talks about those whose names are not written in the book are going to be astonished by the beast when he appears Um, and that they may be susceptible to taking the mark of the beast. And what Zion's trying to say here is if you are redeemed, if you are one of God's children, if you have given your life over to Christ, if you have become a believer, you are no longer susceptible to the temptation of receiving the mark of the beast. It will be anathema to you. And you would rather go to your death than receive it. Okay, gotcha. So it's like, it's a ward from the, like, it's like a mental block, essentially. Uh, something like that. Like, if it, I don't know if, if Tim is even trying to go that concrete with it. 
um, because it's one of those weird vagaries, kind of like the Israel thing with the dragon and the woman in the previous previous book that we read. Tim kind of takes these vague notions and then pulls them out to become something a little bit more tangible. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of what he's saying. And he also mentions that the names written in the Book of Life were written from the creation of the world and cannot be blotted out, which is where you will get into doctrines like predestination and eternal security. Um, predestination meaning that since God already knows who the elect are going to be, that you are destined for this since God already knows that it's happening. And you get like, I think that's Calvinism. Yes, yeah, that's Calvinism. You say, yeah, you know more about Calvinism than I do. Yeah, it's uh, I've uh, been on this recent Christian debate page. Um, that's like, I think it's called like somewhat civil Christian debates. Essentially, that page just dev- devolves into Calvinist versus Mormons, which which you get, we get some. Yeah, what pretty, a matchup! Yeah, that, that's like the what a what, what a cage match. The, the, that those are the most common denominations on this board is Calvinists and Mormons. They, going they do like to talk about their specifics, though. Yeah, yeah, they'll they'll talk to you. Mm-hmm. Both of those groups. Um, and the other one is Eternal Security, also known as Once Saved, Always Saved. So if you were raised Baptist, ding ding ding. Yeah, yeah. So you, yeah, you guys are big Once Saved, Always Saved versus what we think of, at least in like the Assemblies of God and some of the Pentecostal denominations as um, backsliding. Mm-hmm. or a lack of eternal security. Um, that was one of the big philosophical and theological differences that we had with Baptist was, uh, you know, there is no eternal security. You can fall back into sin um, if you don't, you know, re-up your faith. Yeah, which I'm sorry, Shane, if uh, if heaven is real, I- I'm getting let in. By your theology, I am too. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay. I thought, like, uh, for a second, it was just like, once saved, always saved, as long as you're Baptist. Right, right. <laughs> Those I Methodists. To, I went to a few Baptist churches. Oh, okay, yeah, you're good. I'm you got good. it. Yeah, yeah. You got you got the merit badge. Of My stupid. Taekwondo instructor was Baptist, so uh, okay, good. <laughs> he he prayed over me a few times. You got that God belt. Yeah, yeah, totally. I got my God belt. <laughs> We will have to talk about my adventures in Christian martial arts one day. <laughs> the mix of like Taoist and Buddhist like discipline and philosophy mixed with Baptist Christianity is uh, it's a real peanut butter and chocolate. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a special episode on it. That is the uh, some of the really great experiences in my life were actually while I was I was in martial arts. And it was all through a Christian program. Okay. It was kind of cool. It was really cool. One of my first real examinations of my faith as an adolescent was, uh, was during that process. Okay. And I don't think it took the exact turn that they wanted it to. (laughs) Cause I ended up with a belt and, uh, and maybe no faith, but it laid the groundwork at least. Fists of God. Yeah, totally. (laughs) What's that line from, uh, from dead alive? I kick ass for the Lord. There's a Uatu the Watcher watching over a variant of me who is an MMA fighter and a preacher <laughs> somewhere. And it wasn't to be, kids. But uh, anyway, moving on. We have a massive digression here because the book does. This is a very long Zion section, so we're going to move on. Ray, Hattie, and Albie on their way back to the safe house. Um, so they transfer Hattie's body, in quotation marks, at Kankakee. Um, she's under the sheet and there's just so little GC personnel that they don't even care. There's like, yeah, we can't even help you with that. Just do whatever you got to do. And they do give them something to transfer over. I don't think, I think it was spray paint actually, you know, now that I think about it, cause they got to black out the windows. I think David got them some black spray paint from the GC supplies mm-hmm. um, because that pays off later as they start blacking out the strong building. Um, they confer with Steve Plank that Hattie has been transported and the GC is buying her death, her alibi. So we now know the GC is like, well, Hattie Durham deceased. Gotcha. So All she's right. off the grid. Okay. 
speaking of going off the grid by faking your death, <laughs> um, it's Hannah that comes up with the idea of how to get herself, David, Abdullah, and Mac out from under the GC. She's like, look, why don't we take a plane, write ourselves up a mission, get away, and then crash the plane? Okay. Sounds like a decent plan. And David's like, what, I'm supposed to come up with a plan? She's like, yeah, you're the plan guy. I'm just the idea guy. And he's like, I don't know about that. And then she leans in on him with the, come on, Davey, do it for Amy. Damn. <laughs> Which is like, wow. Like, all right. Like, I mean, I get it, but she goes hard <laughs> real early. And we end this chapter with Mac actually telling Buck that Annie has died. So bad news all around, but we, we have hope going forward into chapter 10. Back on the plane, Hattie is worried about all the apologies that she has to make. She's like, look, I've treated these people terribly. Like mm -hmm. I took advantage of their hospitality. I was mean to them. I rebuffed all of their attempts to love me, to show me grace and mercy. I fed information about them to the GC. Uh, the, I got your old safe house messed up. Like I have done all kinds of terrible things. I'm going to have to apologize. And maybe they won't forgive me. Like, she's kind of over the hump of, like, believing that God will forgive her. But she's not so sure about people. Yeah. And to which Albie just goes, look, I was kind of raised to believe that apologies should be specific. But I don't really think we need to do that now. Like, we are not on that kind of timetable. So just a simple, I'm sorry, please forgive me, will probably be enough. Yeah. Which is a nice character moment, again, from Albie that, like, sometimes you don't have to self-flagellate by going back through everything you've done. Yeah. Sometimes an I'm sorry is enough. And she talks to Chloe, and Chloe is very cold to her. Of course I still care about you, but you may not find all of us as soft as my dad. There's a delicate balance here and a lot more people than before. Even in a place as huge as this, it's not easy living together, especially with people who have a history of putting their needs ahead of everyone. Oh, oh okay. All right. Yeah. We'll, we'll see you in a minute. Yeah. She, whoo, she goes in for Hattie. And that's something that we're going to notice as we move forward is that everybody's getting real antsy and stressed out around the strong building. So Chloe doesn't pull her punches. No. Like she's like, yeah, you suck. <laughs> and Hattie's like, oh my God, she hates me. But by the time she gets back, everything's kind of better. Yeah. Like it just sort of blows over. It's a little tense for a while, but it's mostly fine. Gotcha. Back to David. He's finally out of bed and he's putting his GC uniform on and he has a moment where he looks at the GC emblem and goes, were there Nazis that hated the swastika on their uniform the way he hated the GC? And I just, come on, dude. God, like, I have so many problems with that. But the GC aren't Nazis. Like, they're, they're not. It's, Tim and Jerry want them to be Nazis very badly, but they have done something prior and in their own sort of magical rules that made it impossible for them to be Nazis. Because there is not a level of the race component. There is not a level of the, the nationalist and blood component that is necessary for fascism to exist. It is a united front that knows basically no culture. Mm -hmm. um, you can make an argument that the culture is aggressively Western because a lot of, um, you know, Eastern cultural aspects get marginalized. But like they're not Nazis. Yeah. But it's more of that like, oh, my God, persecute me. Please persecute me. <laughs> God, I want to be persecuted so bad. Then he also brings up that uh, no lightning bolt of any magnitude could separate him from his love for Annie. And I was like, this is also bad because <laughs> they're referring to the thing that killed her. It's not it's not good writing. So he doesn't have much time to mope because Viv Ivans comes into his office 
Um, and he gives a description of her as like she sort of got nepotism power um, because she is Nikolai's aunt. And he refers to her as a woman in sensible shoes, which really made me laugh. Are you familiar with that phrase, woman nope. in sensible shoes? Um, are you familiar with the phrase light in the loafers? No. Okay, so both of those are code for saying someone is gay. When you refer to a woman in sensible shoes, you are calling her a lesbian. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> now, I don't know if that's exactly what they meant here because they just describe her sensible shoes, but it's definitely something that may have been like sitting in the brain. Where you refer to a man as light in the loafers, you were uh, calling him gay. Oh, gotcha. So, so Viv may be a friend of Dorothy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah totally. Hey, okay, so we got, we got another lesbian character. Maybe, maybe, maybe. I mean, and at this point, they just want to slap LGBTQ stuff on any of their villain characters. Mm -hmm. To, to make them queer is to make them other. And to you know make I mean? them part of the unhappy gays. Correct, the unhappy gays. <laughs> Maybe one day we will go to that book. I don't know if I'm ready. Oh, God. She's sort of briefing David, and he talks about throwing up on the leader of the world, <laughs> to which Viv is not amused. I just sort of see her as Edna Mode from The Incredibles. You know what? That's perfect <laughs> mental image. And by that, I'm seeing her as Ayn Rand because that's who Edna Mode from The Incredibles was supposed to be as Ayn Rand. Wait, what? Really? Oh, dude, uh, Incredibles is 100% Ayn Rand fan fiction. Yeah, we don't have time to get into that right well, now. We'll, we'll get, get into off, it off, off mic. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Google Incredibles Ayn Rand and you will see that it is in it. There's literally a moment where Mr. Incredible holds up the giant ball like Atlas. Like, it's, it's Ayn Rand. Yeah. Moving on. Okay. <laughs> We learn that Jim Hickman is going to be David's new boss, and we'll hear from Jim later on because he has been promoted to Supreme Commander. He's taken over Leon's old job because Leon is now the most high reverend of the Church of Carpathianism. Mm -hmm. So Leon moves up, Hickman fills his spot, and uh, it, it's really just more of a token role at this point. We'll There's no need for lasts. a Supreme Commander. <laughs> yeah. And now they're basically building a temple complex. We learned about this last time that he, that um, Nikolai wants the roof blown off of his office at the top of the uh, the complex. And he wants it to be open to the stars with glass and everything. Oh, and so they're making like a ziggurat. They're making it like a ziggurat. Yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. It's like a ziggurat structure. Um, so kind of like a Tower of Babel illusion there. Mm -hmm. Ziggurat, um, for those of you who may not know, is a Babylonian like pyramid structure and it's largely considered from historians and theologians that that is what the tower of babel from the old testament was was a babylonian ziggurat yeah because at the top of the tower they would draw like astrological diagrams and stuff so that's why the top of the tower is saying they're trying to reach heaven is because they had like diagrams of the heavens on top right of and i believe that a lot of that type of worship was for uh marduk mm -hmm. right was that yep, the, marduk. Was that, yeah it was the the god marduk thanks snow crash yeah <laughs> read that book it's really good see for me it was adventures in odyssey okay they had a uh, an episode where they went back to the tower of babel in their time machine mm -hmm. yeah wow <laughs> i nice. told you man it's it's doctor who for bible church kids okay i need we need to review like an episode or two. Of I really need to pull out some old Adventures and Odyssey episodes. Yeah, we'll do that for some bonuses because we're going to need content after Left Behind's done. Right. I mean, oh, those kids books will keep us going for a while. Oh, man, we'll blaze through them. We can do one book an episode. Yeah. I don't even know if they finished the story. 
Really? I don't remember if they did. I didn't finish them. I certainly didn't finish them. Dang, the kids didn't get to heaven. Rest in peace. No, you know. <laughs> um, he refers to the guillotines, the loyalty enforcement devices, as cranium and trunk separators. <laughs> so you can see David's paranoia is growing, but his agitation is also growing because he's giving Viv pushback. And like Ivan's really isn't having it. Like she's not thinking his jokes are funny, mm-hmm. but she ends the interaction with saying, I really don't think we're going to have to use these things. Oh, and generally they probably aren't at least in public. Yeah. Uh, Cause we're going to learn about one of the things they're doing with the guillotines later on. Okay. So Ray and the rest finally arrive at the strong building and it's just kind of tears and hugs and apologies all around. You know, we're happy that uh, Hattie's here. Everybody's happy. It's all fine. And Hattie just sort of does her apology to her, does a lot of crying. And specifically, she says she wishes she never met Nikolai. Yeah. Which I think she said previously, Mm -hmm. but really kind of bringing that home. And then there's just sort of a sheepish buck in the corner going, oops. (laughs) <laughs> oh god i introduced him but we do cut back to viv and david for a moment okay and we learn something about annie's death so she's like hey you're aware that uh corporal christopher under your command uh passed away right yeah and he's like yeah yeah, yeah. we were working on funeral arrangements and she's like that won't be necessary yeah because she was killed by the global community god that indicates that she was unfaithful and you, you don't, you don't give a, you don't give a funeral to people that commit yep, treason. No David. state funerals for traitors. And you know what? They that, die in disgrace. <laughs> that, uh, that plot beat I, I liked because that just adds more like struggle to David where he doesn't even get to give a funeral to the love of his life. So that's just adding a little bit more character, like, um, you know, tension, yeah. which I, I like that. Yeah, yeah, that was good. So moving on to chapter 11, which is kind of a short one. Um, it's, it's a little uneventful, but there are some important moments in here. It literally begins by saying that Hattie is getting on everyone's nerves. <laughs> Gosh darn it. Man, so glad to have you as part of the family. Now shut up. Yep, yeah. <laughs> it, you, you thought the Hattie bashing would end with Hattie becoming a Christian. Nope. nope. Still milking that. Yep, yep. Never going to stop bashing. <laughs> but she's so, and everyone's going stir crazy. Buck is finally getting the chance to go back to his magazine, The Truth. Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, Buck being the Matt Drudge of the Tribulation, or I, or is he the Alex Jones? I don't know which one he is. Maybe like a blend. Yeah, probably a blend. I feel like he's got a little bit more credibility than an Alex Jones. He's yeah. not trying to sell dick pills or brain pills. <laughs> Um, and everyone is kind of getting tired of the safe house. Like I said, they're going stir crazy and they are individually going to Ray and being like, can you please give me an assignment to get me out of here, please? (laughs) And the first person who's getting an assignment, even if he doesn't know it yet is Hiam Mm -hmm. because Zeke has a moment where he's like, yeah, I've been getting this identity ready for, uh, Dr. Rosenzweig, you know, well, we could put an appliance in, we could have him grow out a beard. We could cut his hair. Um, you know, we could do some contact stuff. You know, there's all kinds of things that we can do to make him look a little different. Um, we're going to call him Tobias Rogoff. And Ray's like, whoa, 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 whoa. How did you know that Hyam needs to go anywhere? And he says, my dad just says I have intuition. And now we're kind of implying the spiritual gift stuff now mm-hmm. that Zeke just knows that it needs to be done. And so he does it because um, they talk a lot about his servant's heart, which we've mentioned in previous episodes. But that he knows what needs to be done before it's done is considered a type of spiritual gift. It's a type of service. He does refer to Hyam's hair as that whole Einstein hair thing. <laughs> um, and he says that somebody's got to go to Israel. Now, that's going to get more hammered home in future chapters and books. But uh, that's our first little 
little tiptoe into it. So back to New Babylon, Moon, Hickman, Leon, and Nikolai are all kind of talking. And David thinks that Walter Moon, the security chief, may be wavering in his loyalty a little bit. Okay. And that he might be someone that he can lean on. But that doesn't quite get paid off yet. Hickman, having risen into the rank of Supreme Commander, gets a replacement, a a new guy named Suhail Akbar. David immediately has the worry that he may not be able to manage Akbar. Um, He's a new guy. He's a new piece on the board. And David's done really well in the environment so far. But the clock is ticking and adding a new element to this is making his job harder. So he's kind of worrying about how he's going to handle this new security guy or this new intelligence guy. So what they're planning, and by them, I mean Mac, Abdullah, David, Hannah, um, is they're going to grab a cargo plane. They don't want to sacrifice the 216 because David still might be able to patch into the 216 and all of its radio and bug stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so they need a cargo plane, and they want to try to carry something valuable so that when the plane goes down, it's kind of hurting the GC. Mm-hmm. And Hannah has this idea um, a little later of, hey, I know how to implant microchips into pets. I used to do it as a vet. What if we had a bunch of stuff for these loyalty enforcement centers and we just crashed the plane? Ah, okay. So that's the plan, at least for now. Um, and then we end this section with a little moment of uh, Hacker Man stuff from David that is very silly. Um, he refers to the bugs that he's implanted in his systems as a creature that ignores the software and attacks the hardware directly. Okay, so that's not really a thing. I mean, it technically can be. I assume that you could do something that would make the processor overload like a DDoS or something like that. But the way he describes it is just not really how that works. Mm -hmm. So that just stuck out to me. Back to the safe house. Zion has not told anyone about the planned evacuation of uh, Israel. But Ray is starting to suspect, thanks to what Z has said. And I wrote here that Jerry is trying to move the action and the characters out of the safe house. Finally. Okay. Because this section, they are really kind of quarantined up in that safe house, and it really doesn't move at a great clip, at least for me. It's better than some previous books, but it's still a little draggy. Yeah, I would agree with that. But we get some bad news from Laszlos Miklos, who we haven't heard from in a little while. The Greek church has been compromised. The pastor, Pastor Demetrius, and uh, Laszlos' wife have been taken into custody, and he just basically sends Ray a message that says, has help us. And then as we close the chapter, David gets a call into Hickman's office. Now, they describe Hickman as a Western Fortunato, um, that he's basically just Leon, but not from like New York or wherever Leon's supposed to be from. He's from like Texas or something. And they say he's fleshy. <laughs> Again, uh, I just wrote, stop saying fleshy. For some reason, I'm just imagining Hickman looking like George Bush. George Bush. I see more of like Jackie Gleason and Smoking the Bandit. Okay. Like yep. a Buford T. Justice looking guy. <laughs> Especially because of the accent that they give him. Yeah. Um, and I'm going to talk about the accent later. Okay. And Hickman used to be a cop because of course he did. Mm-hmm. That's probably why I think of Buford T. Justice. Yeah. And Hickman mentions to David, um, hey, uh, can... Can you get a pig? Can like, you get your hands on a pig? Like a huge pig. Like biggest pig, like a bloodborne pig. <laughs> like this gigantic pig. Um, I just wrote here, I'm offended by Hickman's accent. Uh, this is the point where Frank has now offended me. Well, how how is that? Like, can you can you do the accent? Yeah, he sort of talks like this, and uh, everything he says is uh, Yeah, I need a pig, like a big one. Yeah, like, I need yeah, a pig, yeah. like a big one. Uh yeah, you think you can get that for me, David? <laughs> Which I think I understand why you have the George Bush <laughs> comparison yep. there. 
<laughs> it is really funny. And so we find out why he needs a pig is because scuttlebutt around New Babylon is that because of Zion's address and talking about desecrating the temple, that Nikolai is planning on riding the pig into Jerusalem to mock the triumphal entry of Jesus, mm -hmm. which happens in all four Gospels, Yeah, by the way. Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding a donkey. It's what everyone celebrates Palm Sunday about. He's going to come into the city riding a pig, which is an unclean animal mm -hmm. within Judaism. He's going to ride it up into the temple, and he's going to sacrifice it, which is a massive desecration. Like yep. in, in Judaism, that is a, that's a huge middle finger. And that Nikolai is doing it basically to say, oh, you want Antichrist? I'll give you an Antichrist. F*** you. And it's funny because Hickman lays it out and asks David, you ever read the Bible? <laughs> David's like, uh, I grew up Jewish. Not really. He's like, oh, all right. Old Testament only. Okay, well, I'll, I'll, I'll spill it out for you. And gives him the whole plan. Can you read that part for me? Well, isn't there a story about Jesus riding into Jerusalem on a donkey and people singing and throwing leaves and whatnot? Uh, I was raised Jewish. Oh, so no New Testament for you. Well, anyway, there's that story, I'm pretty sure. Picture His Excellency having fun with that stuff. Uh, riding a pig with people, pay around and sing and throw stuff. Oh, Lord, please, I, I can't imagine. I can come up with them, can I, Hasid? You can, sir. Hey, I better get in there. Get on that pig for me, will you? I'm going to tell him it's as good as he got. I'll let you know. That's, that's how they end the chapters. We foreshadow the big old pig. We're going to come back to the pig a few times until we actually get to the next book. Um, but chapter 12, Ray goes to meet with Hyam and neither of them can really get any sleep. Hyam is crying um, and he is really regretting his decisions. He's regretting taking so long to come to Christ. He is regretting the murder. Um, and he's saying like, you know, all these people are dead. My house staff, my family, it's all my fault. And Ray says to him, I think very little is our fault anymore. Mm -hmm. And I wrote, this is bad. This is another bad thing. Now, we spent a lot of time talking Christo-fascism mm -hmm. uh, earlier. We went on a big old digression on that. This, I think, applies. Very little is our fault anymore because we are in the last days and it is the servants of the Antichrist against which we are fighting. It's a very dangerous place to be where your faith is telling you that the bad things that happen either to you or the bad things that you do are not your fault. Yeah. So. We still can't get away from the underlying messages that are being communicated here. Mm -hmm. So I did not like that line at all. But they kind of bond. They have a little trauma bond session over their desire and indulgence in murder. which <laughs> <laughs> just isn't great. Mm. Um, Hyam says, am I supposed to feel forgiven? Which I think is a natural impulse, um, especially, you know, if you're new to a faith um, that is supposed to talk about forgiveness of sins, you're never going to truly feel that way. Not really. Um, and not forever. You're going to have moments of doubt. You know, that's just how your brain chemistry works. Yeah. So it's a natural feeling. And then Hayam starts saying things that sounded very familiar to me. Like, who am I to lead these people? I am not eloquent. I don't know the scriptures, but I am willing to be willing. I am at the end of myself. Mm-hmm. Who does that kind of sound like if you want to search back through your uh, your biblical knowledge? That's Moses. Yeah, it's it? totally Moses. <laughs> so so like my theory uh, and they even like allude in this to like if you're willing to let God use you like, you know, you you will become a modern day Moses. So my theory about Haim becoming almost like a replacement for Moisha is starting to kind of come full circle. 100 percent. 
Mm-hmm. So I, I didn't spoil it for you earlier. That is what they are shaping up into in almost one to one literal terms. But we're going to keep moving mm-hmm. until we get there. But that journey is beginning. And I it's not a spoiler because literally they say Moses in this passage and they're going to say it a few more times. But the I am willing to be willing, but I am at the end of myself is where a lot of Christian theology would say you need to be. Okay. If you're walking with God, you need to be at the end of yourself and be able to give yourself over to that higher authority and let that direct your steps. You know, it's not unlike, you know, some of the Jedi stuff like you are not your own. You have to give yourself over to the force. You have to open yourself up. You don't manipulate it. It works through you. That is a lot of what Christian teaching you will hear is it is not about you. It is about God. And so we're back to David. Um, He's getting his stitches out with Hannah. They're watching Leon on TV. He's wearing a nice burgundy robe and addressing the world. And he goes back to the Jewish resistance thing there for a minute. And he calls woe down on the people of Jerusalem Um, because Jerusalem, unlike the other cities in the world, are not building their Nikolai statue. They're not building their all natural in miniature. They talk about how like there's statues that are being built in crystal and some in gold and some in jade and some big and some small. Um, The only stipulation is that it cannot be as large as the one in New Babylon. And people are like competing. And the prize is you get your first marked facilities. Yeah. And like a few of them were twice life sized. And fortunately, I was like, oh, yeah, these are biggest. Got to like pay like special attention to these places and go visit them for making big statue. Yeah, big statue. (laughs) Um, we also learned that it is official. Nikolai will be making his visit to Jerusalem personally as a triumphal entry to prove that thou shalt have no other gods before him. Around this part, like, again, like we've talked about this before, but especially in this part, I started feeling this weird vibe of like, man, all of the things that like, they're depicting Nikolai doing in order to like make him seem like the bad guy. This is just like the Old Testament God. Right. And, and like that, that started grating at me heavily because I'm like, you're trying, and I know they're doing the Antichrist thing and like inverting all of like these holy aspects for like negative, but like when you come up from like an ex evangelical framework and like, the, like a lot of the things that they're depicting like as bad Nikolai was the reason that I left the church in the first place. Right. Essentially what they're saying is it's only bad when they do it. Yeah. It's good when we do it. When our guy does it, it's fine. And I ha- I don't know. I had like a really big problem with that kind of double standard because it's like, it's almost like they're pointing out the flaws in Christian theology but putting it on like the bad guy's face and it's, I don't know. It just, it did something really weird. It's flimsy. Yeah. It's very flimsy and it's flimsy almost to an insulting degree. Yeah. You feel like your intelligence is being a little insulted Mm -hmm. because it is a very blatant double standard that you don't see a lot of people questioning and the people who do question are immediately shouted down. It's very like the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. You know, and I'm never one to engage in like, you know, fedora tipping atheist style debate with my Christian friends, Mm -hmm. Um, you know, because a lot of my Christian friends don't believe like this. They do not. They are not fundamentalists. They are not evangelicals. They have come to their faith in their own way um, and they have their own justifications and their own morality that incorporates their faith, but does not spring from their faith necessarily. Mm -hmm. If I were to encounter someone who believed hook, line, and sinker the way that the authors of this series believe and the way that their target audience believes, 
I would probably talk very differently to them. Yeah. Not in the way that I'm speaking now. It would be much more speaking the way that I did when I was to a believer like this, but much more gently. But it, at the same time, it is very frustrating. Yeah. Because you feel like you're being insulted. <laughs> yeah. And it's like when you do have like conversations with these kind of believers, it's really hard to stay gentle sometimes because of the amount of like thought stopping mechanism or thought stopping arguments that they'll use that they don't even realize that that's the tactic they're using most times. What did Bertrand Russell call it? I think it was Bertrand Russell, a thought terminating cliche. Yes. Yeah. 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 You, you, um, that's what the words I was looking for. Yeah. 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 Um, it's, you know, the the Bible is true because it's the word of God. Um, it's the word of God because it says it in the Bible and the Bible is the word of God. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. And it's that like, yeah, exactly. That, that thought loop that you can't breach and that's all in his that, ways, yeah. not our ways, you know, like the, the conversation stops there. Yeah. So yeah, it is incredibly frustrating is the best word that I can use. So Albie and Buck are going to be the ones dispatched to Greece as the rescue effort. Um, mm-hmm. There's a brief passage that just mentions that. And then they move on. Ming toy messages, David in a panic. Um, because Chang is going to be the first in line to take the mark. Ooh. Now, it's important to recognize here it's not of his own volition. It is his father pushing him to do that because his dad wants him to get a GC job. He's a child prodigy. And part of doing that and trying to get in good with the GC, we're going to show how loyal our son is and pull him in. So David makes a call to personnel to find out about Chang. And apparently Chang is a wanted quantity, like they want to draft him into all of these teams at the GC. Um, But David is the golden boy, so he kind of gets his pick. And so he's going to try to put a plan in place to get Chang out with them. Mm -hmm. So he goes to meet Hannah and sort of prep her about Chang as uh, he's getting his stitches out. And they have a kind of a long dialogue, kind of a back and forth. It's sort of cute. They're getting to know each other. And specifically, they mention, think about freedom and about being away from here. And this is going to be the first time that this group of people are going to be outside the GC apparatus since basically we met them and they started getting focused on in the narrative. Yeah. So their whole dynamic is about to change as long as they can pull this heist off. And really, they're heisting themselves. Yeah. (laughs) Okay, so on to chapter 13, we get a continuation of this Hannah and David dialogue. Um, Hannah's sort of telling her story, talking about mostly Native American stereotypes um, and how, you know, people assumed a lot of different things about them. And um, her life was pretty normal, um, not full of stereotypes. She grew up on a Cherokee reservation. She even goes on. It wasn't all teepees and stuff like that. That's what they just showed to the tourists. Actually, it was kind of just like a lower class neighborhood. Yeah, lower class, rural, suburban neighborhood. Yeah. And she talks about how she tracked the vanishings immediately for what they were, mm-hmm. that it was God rapturing his church. And she saw the judgments for what they were. And instead of making her a believer, it made her pissed off at God. <laughs> um, and so when Nikolai showed up on the scene immediately, she was like, all right, cool. Now I'm into this. This is way better than God. And out of her kind of anger at God, she joined up with the GC. The earthquake, the wrath of the lamb took her entire reservation. There were no survivors. And like pretty much everyone else who's gone through this story, she found Zion as a resource, found that he was able to, quote, put the cookies on the lower shelf, which is not a thing that people say. This is like a Jerry and Timism that has now been in the mouths of like three people. People don't say this. Stop using this phrase. Um, and she admits that her sin was pride. She thought she knew better than God. She thought that she knew more than God or she was more moral 
than God. Mm-hmm. And I can empathize with that. Like, yeah. I, you know, there's many times that we've called out the morality of this God. But, you know, clearly, Gavin, we're in the wrong here. <laughs> so back to the safe house. Zeke presents Buck and the crew with some empty GC uniforms belonging to some missing soldiers. Um, so they're going to be outfitted with GC uniforms. These are guys who went missing during the horsemen. So it's surprising that these uh, <laughs> they aren't burned up. I guess they were the ones that choked yeah. instead. But these guys have been marked MIA. So it's easy for them to assume their identities somewhat. Yeah. Because, again, the GC is entirely incompetent and doesn't keep good records. Zeke is worried because, from what he understands, the mark and the loyalty enforcement initiative is already being practiced on prisoners. So his dad does not have long. Yep. Because he knows, and he even says, and it's very dark, he's like, he won't take the mark. My dad's getting out of that jail in a box. And I just went, whoa. Like, that's a dark light. It's a good one. Yeah. But it's dark. So back to David, he's thinking back on Hannah and how nice she was to him and how glad he is to have her around. And he starts listening in on the Wongs, which is actually nearby Hannah. So he's using his bug system to listen in on the Wongs, decides to download the recording because most of it is in, he says Chinese. I don't know if it's Cantonese or Mandarin. I would assume it's Mandarin. Um, And so he sends it to Ming Toy and he's like, hey, can you sort of give me the gist of what's being said here? But it's very clear that Mr. Wong is arguing with his son Mm -hmm. and Chang is crying. And this was about the point where I got to hear Frank do his Chinese person voice. Yeah, his, uh, his Mickey Rooney voice. Oh, man, it is a Mickey Rooney Breakfast at Tiffany's voice, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, man, it's, it's pretty bad. Yeah. And, like, you know, as a VO, you're in kind of a tough place. Yeah, because we talked about this a little bit before. Because I've been, uh, I finally have gotten around to doing the the gunslinger um, voice by Frank Muller. The, his voices do get better if he has better content. But you mentioned that in the second Dark Tower voice, there is a uh, uh, there's a, a caricature that Stephen King writes that he's in a similar position with. Yeah. So what we mean by that position is when the author is writing dialogue that is like broken English or mispronounced English, things like that. As a VO, you have to take direction and you are in a little bit of a tough spot. Mm -hmm. So do you do a voice that sounds true to what is on the page or do you do the words themselves and stay true to the text the way it's written, but with no accent? Yeah. And I don't think you can win there, yeah. <laughs> honestly, but it doesn't matter whether you can win. It is still cringe to listen to. Miss Akbar, you speak Chinese, Pakistani, me no. English, okay, okay. Yes, Wong, question for you. New worker, get loyalty mark first? Yeah, that sounds awkward. Oh man, I, we didn't mention he begins with Missa Akbar. Oh. Yeah, that's, that's what it begins with. And that we're just off to the races from there. Yep. It is not great. But back to the actual content here. We can get past the cringe for a minute. David decides he is going to call Chang directly. And he basically pulls him in and is like, look, man, I'm going to get you out of here. Mm-hmm. So I'm getting you an interview with my team. That's going to buy us both some time. You're going to be okay. And, you know, Chang, he's a frightened kid. You know, he's in real deep shit right now. David is throwing him a lifeline. Because um, I'm sure David sees a lot of himself in this guy. So he's planning to get Chang out along with the rest of them. Yeah. And we're going to close today on chapter 14. And there's a little bit more to go here. Ray and the rest are watching Zion kind of quizzing Hyam about both the Bible and Bible prophecy. Mm-hmm. Um, can you read that first section for me? 
Come, come, Haim, Cyan said. This is exciting, dramatic, miraculous stuff. This is the greatest story ever told. I know where God has provided a place of refuge for his children, but I'm not going to tell you until you are ready. You must be prepared in case God calls you to be a warrior for the Lord, to go into a battle of words and wit. Your knowledge would help carry you, but God would have you to be your strength. I believe that if he confirms in your heart that you shall be his vessel, he will empower you with supernatural abilities to fight the satanic miracles of the Antichrist. Can you envision the victory, my friend? Yeah, so he's laying out a plan, and he's almost kind of doing a Gandalf a little mm-hmm. bit. Like, yeah. I'm not going to tell you the whole thing, even though he's the prophet here. Yeah. Zion is the prophet. Hiam is kind of the leader, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, he's the Moses figure. You've got the prophet Elijah in the form of Zion, and then the great deliverer Moses in the form of Hiam. Mm-hmm. So there's your, there's your answer, buddy. <laughs> there you go. Heck yeah. Now they get into a little bit of, uh, um, oh. by referring to the Exodus from Israel as a manifest destiny. Um, they refer to it as a manifest destiny that also belongs to the Gentiles because uh, they also believe in the true Messiah, which is a whole mess of the fetishization of Israel thing again. Like, mm-hmm. I, you've heard me beat this drum before. Just kind of take it in. It's definitely there. It's the adopted Jew. The Christians are actually God's chosen people, but the Jews got it partially right. So we're going to correct their mistake kind of thing. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not great. I am at this point is officially being sent on like a biblical quest. Yep. And he will be given magical aid during his quest. They talk about how God will provide him manna from heaven. Just like in the old Testament, his clothes will not wear out. He's like, pick an outfit you really like. Cause you're going to be wearing it till the end of days. <laughs> Um, and he says the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. So we get that, that old chestnut again. And he's like, who who am I going to be fleeing from? And he's like, yeah, the legions of the antichrist essentially. Right, right. Just like Pharaoh's armies, you were going to be fleeing from the legions of the antichrist. Carpathia's hordes. Carpathia's hordes. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty cool. We talk about how the old Testament miracles all actually happened. Nothing in here is metaphorical or symbolic or legendary. All of this actually happened, which of course is the same kind of fundamentalist reading of the Bible that we've gotten this whole time. Mm-hmm. And they really just are like, yes, Hiam is Moses. In case you had any doubt, Hiam is Moses. He's the new Moisha, the new Moses, and he's going to be playing that role. Back to David in New Babylon. Um, he is prepping that escape to include Chang, like we said. And uh, Hannah brings up something very important. Hey, how do you know there's not another you monitoring you? Like, you're good. You're Hacker Man. But how do you know there's not another one that's actually monitoring you as well? Which does wonders for David's already existing paranoia. (laughs) (laughs) And so he is so paranoid um, that he decides he's going to listen in on Carpathia again. And we have a great moment where he wonders if Satan prays to himself. Because the last time he listened in on Nikolai, Nikolai was praying to Satan. Mm -hmm. Does Satan now pray to himself? I guess not, um, but he sure does admire himself quite a bit. Yeah, yeah, he, uh, does this happen in this chapter, um, or did it happen earlier, how, like, Nikolai wanted to, like, buy more mirrors That's for this his passage, office? yeah. Yeah, 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 Nikolai wants to buy more mirrors, because, like, everyone else gets to look at me, I shall have that privilege as well. Oh, he's walking around that office in his birthday suit. Yeah, you know, all natural. All natural. <laughs> And he's just like, he's doing like the uh, Patrick Bateman thing in the mirror, like looking at himself, like flexing, you know, <laughs> we notice that Nikolai never sleeps, never slows down. And I said to you earlier what I wouldn't give to be indwelt by Satan. Yeah. <laughs> I wouldn't need medication anymore. 
his secretary comes in and he talks to her briefly about the mirrors that he wants. And then she leaves and he refers to her under his breath as a homely old wench. I'm like, nah, he didn't say wench. He's not, he's, he's Satan. He's not going to say wench. Yeah. (laughs) So Nikolai calls Mac and they decide to check in on the GC weapon stockpile. So Nikolai's like, uh, tell me about all these weapons. (laughs) <laughs> and Max like, oh, I'm not really your weapons guy. But he's like, yeah, you probably know someone. So get on it. <laughs> um, so Nikolai is definitely going to bring out all the weapons they confiscated. So that Chekhov's gun from books earlier is now finally really coming back. So we had the nukes earlier. Now all the other weapons are coming back into play. Yep. So the cabal of Nikolai's toadies, which would be Moon, Hickman, Suhail, Fortunato. All come in um, and they're bowing and scraping and, you know, kissing his ring, you know, doing the typical like, oh, great Lord sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And they all sit down to kind of have their their evil council meeting. Uh, Hickman will not stop babbling like an idiot mm-hmm. throughout the entire thing. He is very clearly in over his head. Yep. Like he's not good at his job. He's showing his incompetence. You know how they say people promote to their level of incompetence? Yeah. We've made it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, the peacekeeping forces are mobilizing to crush any resistance and preparing for the triumphal entry. So they're going to mobilize the peacekeeping forces to basically keep any Jewish resistance off of Nikolai while he performs his entry into Jerusalem. And Nikolai is enraged that Zion's followers, rather than believing in him because of the resurrection, only believe that this proves even more that he is the Antichrist. And he was like throwing things in the room, being like, what will it take to convince these people? And it's like, nothing, man. And then he starts cussing. Yep. Now, we don't say that, but it says he swore. Yeah. Um, so we don't actually know what words he said, but he used some salty language. Those fuckers. <laughs> These motherfuckers. <laughs> um, and then the GC somehow doesn't know where Haim is. So remember that they are completely incompetent. They have not been able to find his murderer. So there's this great line in here where Carpathia describes what happened to him when Haim killed him. Carpathia roared with laughter. You do not think I know who murdered me. I lift that limp arm of his to start the applause. And a few seconds later, I lurch away from the sound of a gun. He chops my feet from under me with that infernal chair. And the next thing I know, I am in the lap of a madman. Well, I knew instantly what was happening, though I may never know why. But he was no frail old man. There was no stiff arm and no limp arm. No scrawny senior citizen. He rammed that blade into me. And I could hear him gutting my skull. The man was hard as a rock and strong. I have fun. Like the, it's a fun voice the, to the, do. The, the, the Muller uh, Carpathia voice. I'm going to be sad when Farone jumps back in now. Children of the night. What the music they make. (laughs) So great. Um, And so we move on from there. And there's a total contradiction of previous canon. And I normally wouldn't jump on this, but it was just so jarring that suddenly they don't have an ID on Rayford Steele. Yeah. They refer to him as the accomplice and the nut with the gun Mm -hmm. and how they don't know where he is or even who he is. What? They like, well, we're pretty sure he's not Middle Eastern. You knew he was Rayford Steele and you put it on television last book. Jerry and Tim forgot their own shit. Oh my God. Yeah, they completely forgot their own canon. And this got published. 
Yeah. There was like an editor and stuff. Like this went out to print. My God. What? Are y'all okay? Tim, Jerry, like, is this, is this after two, was this written after the 90s? Uh, yes, it was. Yeah, I guess they were just, they got so saddened and too depressed that the rapture didn't happen in 2000 that they started missing details. Maybe, I don't know. <laughs> it's just such a big, jarring flaw that I was like, are you serious? So bizarre. And then we close out the chapter by going to see a man about a pig. Yep. They talk about the pig and Hickman's like, uh, I'm going to get you the pig, sir. And Nikolai's like, what did you say? And he's not supposed to know. No one was supposed to know about the pig. And so apparently the scuttlebutt going around the office was not public knowledge. And uh, Nikolai basically looks at him and he's like, I'm going to count to 10 and you can tell me who ran their mouth about this. And Hickman like breaks down. Like he starts sobbing because he knows that whoever told him is a dead man. Yep. And he's like counting back from 10. And I, I think he only gets to eight before Hickman gives the guy up. It really is sort of Nikolai as Stalin um, because you hear stories about how Stalin would treat his inner circle like this. Like mm -hmm. he would bully them and he would, you know, make them disappear like, yep. without a second thought. Manic Nikolai moves on from this immediately being like, uh, yeah, kill the guy who blabbed. Uh, anyway, so this pig. Yeah. <laughs> You're going to get me a pig. Yeah, he's just like, I'm going to kill the guy who told you this. But now that you mention it, let's actually go on about this assignment. So can you close us out today by reading the little exchange about the pig between uh, Hickman and Nikolai? I thought so. And yes, I have need of a pig. A big, fat, juicy, huge nostril beast. So overfed that it will be too lethargic to throw me. Should I choose to ride it through the Via Della Rosa in the Holy City? Tell me, Hickman. Tell me about my pig. Uh, I actually haven't seen it yet. Um, but, but, um, but you understand my order. Yes. Big, fat, and ugly. Yeah, I didn't hear you, James. Stinky? May I have him smelly? Uh, yeah. Whatever I want? Yes. Are you angry with me, my loyal servant? Uh-huh. Well, I thank you for your honesty. Do you understand that I want an animal that could accommodate my fist in either nostril? And that's about the point where David hears Mac and Abdullah show up and the theatrics end. And that's going to take us to the end of the episode this week. So this is a very different Nikolai. Yep. And I told you that was coming, that we're getting a very different flavor of Nikolai now that Satan takes the wheel. Yeah. And it's, it's just fun. You know, yeah, it's, we're it's, having it's, fun here. We're playing around fun. with pigs and, you know, we're threatening guys' lives. Like, it's getting real. There's yep. no more suave James Bond, you know, like glad handing stabby in the back Nikolai yeah we got Count Von Count talking to George Bush about a pig exactly it's a fun time you know what you love to see it anyway that's gonna do it for us this week on I Survived the Rapture thanks as always for coming along on this journey I'm Shane Bazell and I'm Gavin Russell and until next time don't stick your fist up a pig nostril bye Okay, that's our show. Please make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and be sure to follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, all at Rapture Podcast. I Survived the Rapture is part of the IndieSource Podcast Network. For more great shows and to join the conversation, please visit IndieSource.com and check out the IndieSource Discord. We'll see you there, and thanks for listening. Power, he can tempt you and leave.